0: What's up, everyone? This is Wes Lyon from McGill & Lyon Dental Advisors. Welcome to the Drilling It Down podcast. More dentists than ever are searching for solid, independent, objective financial advice. On this show, I sit down with my guests to help you see clearly through the fall, providing education as it relates to practice management, tax planning, investing, practice transitions, really any financial topic you can name that's going to help you reach your goals. Jonathan, welcome back to the show. Good to be back, man. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. I think it's a perfect time to have you back, considering all the change going on around the world here. Yeah, yeah. We've had a couple
1: of months in a row where we've had some, you know, transition-specific, DSO-specific topics.
0: So this seems like a a good point to jump back in and kind of talk about some of the stuff that we're seeing. No, absolutely. And I mean, for for those of you that are listening uh, via podcast for the first time, Jonathan Martin is the uh, cover article. Would you tell your wife you're a published author
1: now? Well, you know, I don't want her already inflated sense of me getting even more
0: inflated. <laughs> I like to tell my wife all that all the time. I'm a published author. <laughs> <laughs> Does it get you anywhere? No, it yeah, doesn't. It makes- she she chuckles. But no, we had an article in the newsletter last month that you helped us write. And then you actually wrote this one this month. So I think it's a good way to kick it off here on what's going on, but I really want to start with last month and just, you know, what's going on from our side of the house. We've really heard people have unfilled promises. You know, they were given an earn out or they were told the rollover equity would be worth more than it was. And, you know, a lot of people are missing out on it. And I think just as when We were hearing the stories about how much money people were getting. You always cling to the things you hear, right? So, this isn't necessarily, hey, it's the entire market. But that being said, we can't really ignore the fact that these stories exist and people have been promised money from DSOs that they're not getting. So, what's going on there? Well, so, you know, the reality
1: with these deals has always been you're committing to, you know, a period of time after the transaction. These days, typically it's five years. And you don't get 100% of the purchase price up front, right? Ideally, the biggest chunk of it is cash. At least that's our recommendation because it's the only guaranteed money in these transactions. And the rest is maybe money, you know, and whether it's the portion that you have to take in stock, which, you know, these days and for, you know, the past several years, there's always going to be a stock component. And then there's other, you know, components to the transaction, whether it's, as you mentioned, earn out money, which is bonus money based on future potential growth thresholds hold back money that's more maintenance based if you maintain the practice then you'll get that money you know all of those components of the deal are subject to risk and so you know we have always said to clients hey the, the worst situation imaginable would be for you to do one of these transactions based on you know the idea that you need to recoup every penny plus some amount of growth in order to hit your you know, financial goals. You know, the last thing you want to do is be laying awake at at night in bed, hoping that that stock ends up growing like they showed you in the letter of intent that, you know, those earnouts actually get hit. And so, you know, maximizing cash and minimizing those components has always been the name of the game. Well, as of the last 12 to 18 months, the industry, at least as far as DSO affiliations has started to show some signs
0: of instability for the first time really. And Um, I don't think this is necessarily DSO specific either. I think private equity is showing the cracks right now, right? The economy as a whole,
1: yeah. I mean, you know, the the combined effects of what happened last year, which was, you know, Fed started raising interest rates. So money's getting more expensive. Uh, At the same time, you know, cost of labor going through the roof inflation. So your cost of goods are going through the roof. And, you know, that's really been a double whammy, at least with regard to dental practices and their values in these types of, you know, DSO affiliations. One, because the result of interest rates going up was, you know, it's always going to put downward pressure on values. And I mean, we did our first big DSO transaction 14 years ago. Since then, terms improved every year year over year over year multiples went up every year until last
0: year um, i remember when we said 6 this is amazing 7 yeah. this is amazing then someone gets 9 and you're going oh gosh yeah and and you know to be clear the multiple that you
1: get always is relative to the amount of EBITDA you have, people tend to get it in their heads that, like, oh, this guy got this multiple, so I should get that multiple. But wherever you were with re- with regard to your EBITDA and what your practice would demand at the time, those those multiples improved every year until 2022, as interest rates started to go up. But downward pressure on values, and, and you know, multiples didn't crumble. You know, if you were maybe poised to get eight x at the beginning of 2022 you're probably more at like seven and a half X these days, you know, seven and a quarter X. So, you know, they came down, but they didn't, you know, drop precipitously. But again, the double whammy was not only were multiples coming down, but with the combined effect of the cost of labor going up, with the inflation cost of goods going up, you know, margins are getting squeezed. And so most practices saw their EBITDA go down in 2022 and 2023. And so when you combine the fact that your EBIT has gone down and the multiples are going down, you know, these deals just aren't as attractive as they were. And now are they all of a sudden a bad option? No, I mean, they're still great if, if it's a good fit for you, but that's the case with any transition plan. It works for some and not for others. So, you know, all that's going on. Well, you know, all of these groups borrow their money whether they're borrowing it from private equity or from, you know, a third-party bank, they're borrowing their money and they're borrowing it on variable interest rate loans. And so, you know, some of these groups back when money was virtually free, they were still paying 3-4% interest rates early 2022. Now, some of these rates are 12, 13, 14% and they're getting killed with, you know, interest payments. And so where I say we're seeing, you know, cracks on the fault lines and signs of instability, every group responded to this differently. You know, if they got an infusion of capital before a lot of this started to happen, mostly those groups are still doing fine. They still have liquidity. If they were groups that were very strategic in their acquisitions and were doing things the right way and weren't just pretending like they had monopoly money and making stupid decisions, most of those groups, they're still doing okay. Not all groups are doing okay. And so, you know, rumors of financial instability, to actual layoffs, you know, several groups have laid off the majority of their executive teams or huge percentages of their executive staff, their home office staffs. Those are not signs of a stable organization. And then, as you mentioned, also, word of certain groups not paying earnout payments that doctors earn you know, they hit certain gross thresholds and they're therefore entitled to an agreed upon amount of bonus money mm-hmm. that's not getting paid out. So, you know, really, this was all confirmed at a meeting earlier this summer. One of the biggest law firms in the country who does a lot of this transactional work, the head of that law firm, said their M&A guys have been killing it over the past few years, just with a glut of transactions year over year over year, each year better than the The previous year whereas their litigation attorneys have been sitting on the sidelines and 2023 that's flip-flopping so we're seeing an increase in litigation over these types of things and the question becomes you know how deep does this rabbit hole get you know how how bad are things going to get and so you know a lot of doctors are concerned about going down this road and and they my message is well you always Should have been concerned about it. (laughs) You know, and and not that it was not a good option for some folks, but the fact is there are risks attached to these deals,
0: and you have to understand that you have to acknowledge those risks. No, absolutely. I I kind of find it entertaining because we've always been here just to give the truth in the other side. You know, we're not for it or against it. You've always said that, but we felt like forever we're kind of giving the negative side to this that, hey, it's not as rosy. And now I feel like we're flipping the script. It's like, Hey, you know, I know you heard that story from five or six people, but not all the groups are like that. Some of them are doing fine financially. You can still get a good deal. It's still a good transition option. I'm not saying it's necessarily for you, but if it is for you, the deals are still there. You just need to be careful who you're in bed with. That being said, we told you to be careful who you were in bed with three years ago, five years. I mean, (laughs) how you actually approach the deal has not changed at all that's it right there and mm-hmm. if because you said look all we want to do is maximize the cash and we always told everybody if the cash is enough to get you across the goal line and make you want to do the deal and the rest is gravy yeah, you know get off grade if it does hope they get their earnouts. i don't want to see them litigate at the same time you don't want to be in a position in which you're you know faced with Sinking money into litigation, hoping that you're going to win just so you can be financially independent. Right. You want to be in the position where you sit there and go, Well, what's the probability that I'll win the litigation? <laughs> or that you just don't have
1: to worry about litigation.
0: At all. Yeah. I mean, hopefully this is a wake-up call for folks. You know, the reality has always
1: been that this is a no-brainer for some folks. I mean, there are some practices that are just uniquely positioned, whether it's because of their size or their profitability, that this is really the best option for them. And that will continue to be the case. The the problem has always been, you know, the number of doctors who have been doing these transactions and the number of doctors who should be doing these types of transactions where it does make financial sense. They're not level. And that's just because, you know, you have a lot of forces out there who are trying to compel doctors to do this, you know, whether it's DSOs who only grow if they acquire your practice or, you know, brokers who the only thing they do is sell your practice to DSOs. If that's their only business model, they don't get paid unless you sell to a DSO, whether it's in your best interest or not. So I think this will be a wake-up call for doctors to be, you know, more cautious about any transition alternative whether it's this or anything else, you know, there's a process that you have to follow when you're deciding how to transition out of your life's work and, you know, relinquish your number one income generating asset. And it starts with figuring out financially what you can afford to do. And does this model fit that? It it seems, it seems obvious, but so many doctors call us and they haven't done that first part first.
0: No, absolutely. But I think the big benefit that we're seeing out of this is people are starting to realize that this money that they've put down on a piece of paper that you're supposedly going to get in five to 10 years may not come. And that's a hard reality. And even the doctors that do receive money, most of them are unlikely to receive as much as they were shown originally.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, when you see some of the proposals that we've seen, I mean, doctors who were taking a million dollars in equity, and they had a PowerPoint presentation where a slide showed that million dollars of equity being worth $82 million of equity. And I'm not even kidding. I mean, these aren't made up. You know, those types of drastic promises, the reality is we always uh, should have been able, if you were looking at something like that,
0: to realize, hey, this is this is ridiculous. Yeah, so, but they, the assumptions behind that were never really, nobody ever wanted to dive into and say, well, you know, what went on here? Why are you assuming that? Say, well, we grew at a 25% annualized rate for the last three years. And we go, well, yeah, you know, you started at zero. <laughs> it was pretty easy. Yeah. You know, it's, it's easy to grow. It's just like running a dental practice. You know, if you're at 400,000 of collections, it's not that difficult to grow by 25%. Now you got 3 million of collections, all of a sudden, 25% is a big number. And that's right. That's essentially the problem between that and nobody, everyone assuming that the interest rates would always be free. You take those two things away. Again, it's not that all the equity is going to be worth it. It's just, it ain't going to be worth $82 million. It ain't going to be 25% annualized rates of return. Some people probably will get the 25%. I don't want to say all of them won't. But, but like most of others, them will just get a like, normal return. There'll be a spectrum. Some
1: people will hit it out of the park. Some people will do the opposite in every iteration in between. But, it, it, you know, like I said, it's one of those things where the decision's only going to affect the rest of your life. Just, you know, make sure you're cautious about it. Hey, but it was that article that honestly led us to the lead article this month. So, you know, we've been hearing these things, seeing them more frequently, you know, exit multiples coming down for practice for groups that are on the market right now. You know, they all base these deals on, oh, we're going to get out at 14, 15, 16, 17x. Reality is if you're on the market right now, you're a group on the market, you're looking at 10, 11, 12x, which is dramatically lower. So, you know, all of these grumblings coming out just due to the economic circumstances we're in. And at the same time, you know, the other transition alternative that we've really seen just skyrocket over the years is doctors who were pursuing partnerships. You know, a a transition alternative that historically had just been kind of reviled. And when I started doing this, if you went into a partnership, it was mainly because your practice was just too big to sell to an individual. And so you had to sell it a piece at a time or you wanted to exit over time. So you sold it off a piece at a time. But outside of those couple of reasons, You know, most people were very wary of partnerships. You know, the, the, I'm going to take a pay cut if I do it, or I'll never be able to sell the remaining interest, or, you know, they just don't work. We heard all kinds of things. And, you know, and I went back and looked at statistics. In 2005, 64% of all practices were solo doctor practices. So only 36% were multi doctor. Today, as of 2022, those statistics are completely reversed. So as of 2022, only 36% of practices are solo doctor operations anymore. 64% are now multi-doctor practices. So that change in a
0: 17, 18-year period is just astounding. It is. But yeah, it's. I found it fascinating. Just the article, for those of you listening via the podcast that haven't joined, make sure you join and read this article. I had a doctor and he was looking at this very scenario that we're talking about was, hey, I got the DSO offers. And I said, well, what's the issue? He said, I don't really want to sell to a DSO. So he read this article and realized that, oh, there's this alternative option here. And the thing he had been presented with the alternative option, the thing he hadn't seen yet, though, and I think what we're about to get to is it clicked in his mind that he could actually make more money in a partnership potentially.
1: Yeah. Especially if you're, you know, a younger doc, you know, under age 50, because we see so many of these doctors there in their thirties and forties who are affiliating with the DSO. And, you know, my colleague Wade and I, we've been doing this for long enough where, you know, we've seen the full life cycle of a partnership where a doctor finds an associate, they date for a couple of years, the associate buys, an interest in the practice and then years later buys the senior doctor out of their remaining interest in the practice right and sometimes that happens over as short as 5 years and sometimes it happens over 25 years but you know when we we decided we've seen so many of these let's let's put them on paper and look at the cash flows for the doctors where you know when they sold their initial interest to the associate the practice was smaller and that interest was less valuable but they retained ownership. They retained material ownership for a long period of time and got to continue taking home a significant material portion of the profits. And over that period of time, the practice also grew. So they were making more and more and more each year. The practice was able to grow to a point that it never would have been able to grow to had they stayed a a solo doctor operation. So that when they sold that remaining interest, they sold that back end for significantly higher price. So when you looked at the life cycle, lower price initially, ever increasing cash flows while you maintain material ownership and then a higher price at the end. And you put those numbers on paper and every single situation we looked at on every transaction we've done, the doctor did significantly better than had they sold at whatever point they sold that initial interest to a DSO at whatever the multiples were at that time. Because, you know, like I said, I mean, we've been doing this for a long time. We know what the multiples were at any given time from doing these transactions. And time and time again, just like in the article, in that particular situation, the doc was $4 million better off than
0: they would have been had they affiliated with the DSO. And so- Well, I think, let me chime in there. I think one key thing that people might be missing too, when you do this pathway to partnership, oh, well, I'm going to sell half my profit. I think the key is to growth. And something I always tell people is you know pathway to partnership, and you're the one that really does this work, but I always- tell them to come in. I'm like, no, no, no. Using them to do your partnership because it's got to be on a trigger point. You know, these artificial timetables of this is when somebody buys in don't make sense because then they buy in not enough money for them, not enough money for you. But if you put it on a trigger point and where it's a collection point now, all of a sudden these doctors, I think in the example here took a little bit of a pay cut on the front end, but within a few years they had sold half their practice, but had the same cash flow. Yeah. So
1: just to elaborate for the listener. So, you know, back then, 20 years ago, when we were doing partnerships, it was always some arbitrary period of time that the associate would work before they bought in, usually around two years, maybe three, maybe one or 18 months. But the the concept was you work for an agreed upon period of time. And then regardless of what has happened to income over that period of time, you buy the interest, whether it's a third or 25 percent or 50 percent. And the problem that you mentioned there is, you know, if you're doing two million bucks a year. And then you bring on an associate, and they get the buy in in two years. And in two years, you're still doing two million bucks. Well, you're definitively going to take a catastrophic pay cut. I mean, you you know you can't sell a piece of the
0: pie and keep the whole. It's time. kind of like a race to divorce, just the partnership divorce before your marriage does, because yeah, now you got to go exactly. home and tell your spouse, "I'm only making half as much." Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And
1: you know, spouses always love that. So, you know, the 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 concept changed over the years to well, why are we tying this to an arbitrary period of time? Why don't we tie it to an income threshold, a necessary amount of growth to ensure that, hey, when the sale does happen, there's enough money to go around? Because we all know, as you just mentioned, financial strain is the leading cause of divorce, whether it's
0: professional divorce or, you know, the other kind of divorce. Funny, partnership agreements always work no matter how poorly they're written when there's plenty of money going around. Right. But the cracks in a partnership agreement come out every single time when the money stops flowing. We should do a whole podcast about
1: the <laughs> needs of a good partnership agreement.
0: But so the the uh, the concept of, a
1: th- of, of the trigger point is, okay, we can work backwards to figure out how much the practice needs to grow in order that there's enough money to go around. And it acts as a target. And, and what we found is it also kind of aligns the goals of the buyer and seller. You know, the buyer knows, hey, the harder I work, the faster this thing grows, the sooner I get to buy in and make more money. Obviously, they want that to happen. And the sellers also aligned with that because they know, hey, the sooner the practice grows, the harder I work to get it there, the sooner I have a buyer that's locked into place as opposed to a potential revolving
0: door associate. And so, you know, yeah, the other part, too, is, you know, most doctors, you ask them, you know, hey, if, if you really like this person, want to be a partner? And what's the time frame? Most of them, yeah, there's an arbitrary number in their head. But if you flip the question, ask them, what would the time frame be if you didn't take a paycheck? Most of them would say, oh, tomorrow. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I don't exactly. care. As long Absolutely. as my pay doesn't get impacted, I'd love for them to be a partner. And there's still obviously going to be,
1: you know, a threshold where, okay, look, I, I get the practice needs to grow to here, but I'm not going to wait 10 years for that to happen. And that kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier about growth being the key. Look, partnerships aren't for everybody. It's kind of like what we were just talking about with DSO affiliations. They're not for everybody. One, you have to have a practice that has the physical capacity for multiple doctors, but also the ability to grow. You know, if you can't grow I mean, it's not to say that partnerships can't work at all, but there has to be a unique set of circumstances that make it work. A a seller that's willing to take a big pay cut, maybe
0: doctors that want to both work part time. I mean, at at the end of the day, a a one doctor practice is a one doctor practice. (laughs) In order for a partnership to work, most of the time we're going to have to make it a two doctor practice. You'd be surprised. There's tons of one
1: doctor practices out there that have four ops. Well, guess what? And no room to expand. You ain't turning that into a (laughs) multi-doctor practice, okay? But there's plenty of one-doctor offices out there that have five ops equipped and three more that are sitting there vacant because they always thought, oh, eventually I'll bring in an associate. They're poised to do that. Or maybe they have a neighboring condo unit that's Mm -hmm. sitting there vacant and could easily be rented and expanded upon, adding the necessary operatory space, Another unique thing that's changed with partnerships is the reasons that doctors are going into them are just different. You know, Like I said, 20 years ago, the reasons you went into a partnership were either because your practice was too big and you couldn't sell the whole thing to an individual. And this was before DSO affiliations. Or you had to sell it off a piece at a time. You know, These days you have doctors who are going into it for that reason, but also because they want to
0: build an empire. I think two and other... Another one I hear often is I just want to leave and not have my phone ring. (laughs) Yeah. That is a huge one for doctors these days. When I'm on vacation, I want to be on vacation. And it's kind of funny how these four to six weeks a year can drive it. We totally understand it too. You know, those four to six weeks that you're on vacation and there's an emergency and your phone's blowing up. Yeah, I guess how many emergencies gonna dictate whether or not you thought it was a vacation. Yeah. Well,
1: and that's especially a driver for our younger doctors, our, you know, younger than fifty age demographic, because they do prioritize quality of life more than the older generation. I mean, if you want to, you know, trigger a boomer, just go out and say something like, you know, quality of life, they love that. <laughs> Work life balance, you know. But, you know, for younger
0: doctors, that's a huge priority. Or if you want to scare an associate, right? Hey, we work 65 hours a week here. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Well,
1: and that's what they're getting in some cases when they go affiliate with a a DSO or OSO. Not 65 hours, but, you know, the same, generally speaking, you're working longer hours, you're getting less vacation, and overall, you're making less when you look at it that way. But, you you know, again, another reason that doctors are going into partnerships or pursuing this business model that they weren't in the past is because they want to build an empire. You know, they want to build a gigantic single location or a multi-location, you know, business with a much larger footprint. And they want to retain as much of the equity as possible. But they also understand that, hey, in order to hit some of these growth goals, in order to build the biggest empire, I need people with a vested interest in this business. And the only way to do that is to grant
0: equity. Yeah, we always see it's, you know, I always tell people, hey, associates are associates for a reason. And permanent associates aren't going to be the ones to build your practice to the next level and you get that person in there that really does help you grow it to the next level and they push the bounds that's fantastic except there's a guarantee they're going to be knocking on your door for equity yeah Yeah. today's episode is brought to you by the mcgill advisor the mcgill advisor is your resource to reaching your financial goals faster with greater confidence and less stress members will receive our monthly newsletter delivered to their door, containing all the latest and greatest tips as it relates to taxes, practice management, and achieving financial independence. Membership also includes access to our online portal, including archived articles, webinars with available CE credits, discounts on educational seminars, and much more. Use code podcast20 for 20% off your first year subscription. Yeah. And so you better have a plan because as
1: the time goes by where there is no plan. What do you think happens to that associate? Their delusions get grander and grander. Hey, you know this doctor couldn't do it without me. Uh, without me,
0: he's up. You know the creek. Oh, the funniest mistake I think I see made is when you open a new location and you put the associate in there. So there's zero patients. You do all the marketing. You put all the money into it. Then the associate goes, "Well, I built the practice." You go, know, "That's that's not." what happened here? <laughs> perspective is a funny thing. And everybody's
1: perspective is right in their own mind. All the more reason why you plan these things early so that perspective doesn't have a way of seeping in and killing what could otherwise be a great relationship and and, and a flourishing business.
0: Now, I think we we covered the background of this pretty good. I want to get back to this article, though. So I think, you know, my take from reading it, going through it was really, you know, hey, if you are considering selling to a DSO, and we've always had this, always told people to do, but now that there's more and more information out there, I think people are looking for another option. If you're considering selling to a DSO, and I'm just going to, you know, say some general things. If you're looking at selling to a DSO, you probably have a growing practice. You probably have a very profitable practice. You probably got the ability to expand. If those items aren't true, I don't want to say 100% you shouldn't sell to a DSO, but most of the time, those are going to be qualities that a practice selling to a DSO has. There is another alternative if you plan correctly. And based off this article and the numbers, it looks like if you stretch this over seven, 10 year period, if you pull it off, you can end up with more money and a private buyer. Am I looking at that the right way? Now, I know it's if you pull it off.
1: Well, and that's the key to point out is it worked in this scenario, but like I was alluding before, in every situation like this, where we saw the full life cycle of the partnership, the practice was better off compared to selling to a DSO over the period of time and a comparable period of time. Because remember, with the DSO affiliation, you, you, these days you're going to have to commit five years. So, you know, you have to compare apples to apples, but the caveat being, yes, these situations were practices that were obviously capable of growing and had the physical capacity to do it. So, you know, it's, it, it shouldn't be taken as a foregone conclusion. Well, then I can just bring in a partner and the practice will definitively grow and hit <laughs> metrics like that because it's not always just as easy as snapping your fingers. But interestingly, sometimes it is. I mean, sometimes really there's just so much demand there are so few practitioners in the area being served that you really can just put a warm body in there and it will grow that's obviously not every situation and you know the it's it's usually easy to diagnose those types of things especially when it comes to like opening satellite offices you know you can have demographic studies done if you're in a very saturated market and you haven't grown in you know 10 years and you have a ton of open chair space and these kinds of things tell you i might not have the growth potential necessary but if you've had to stop accepting new patients if you're booked out eight months
0: you know (laughs) you probably are in a situation where you could potentially grow and grow pretty quickly now i I kind of chuckle on that one because people do actually stop accepting new patients If you get to the point you're about to stop accepting new patients, please call us. (laughs) There is something else we can do. Never a good idea. Never a good idea to not accept new patients. But looking at a practical standpoint, if we're looking to implement this, because I see people all the time that call me on my side of the house, we're really dealing with trying to get them financially independent, get them to the point of selling. They say, well, should I come in in a few years right before I'm going to sell? And I say, absolutely not. The key to pulling off one of these partnerships from my side of the house is the fact you looked at it ahead of time and you didn't wait. I think more often than not, when we look at the practice with all these things where we think that we could extract more value for the owner by doing a partnership, the biggest problem becomes, I ain't got seven to 10 years yeah. to shake this whole thing out. Yeah. I wish you would have told me that five years ago. And now the practice, you know, sometimes we deal with these practices they are so large that they either have to go partnership, they have to go DSO. And as much as we get on and we talk about, you know, kind of warning people, don't do DSO. You know, it's not for everybody. We also sit in front of just as many people and have to go, look, this thing is way too big. Yeah. Ain't nobody coming in here with a check. The bank ain't going to write the check. I know you don't want to do this, but yeah, <laughs> but it's kind of your only option because we didn't plan far enough in advance. So it's not to say one's better than the other but the only way to figure out which one's going to be better for you is to start thinking about it earlier, not later. Yeah. If you,
1: if you, if you take the first step and understand your personal financial situation, and then from there, look at all of the options that you have. And in some cases, it could be a partnership. It could be affiliating with a DSO. It could be a number of things. Partnerships are the most versatile transition plan. So looking at a partnership Doesn't mean you're looking at this one scenario that looks the same doctor to doctor to doctor. Okay, it can take a number of forms with completely different financial ramifications. But the bottom line is looking at your options early so that you can plan and choose the scenario that you like best. You're only going to open yourself up to those options by planning in advance. And I would just echo that for any type of transition.
0: No, and kind of the the biggest benefit, and this isn't a benefit for everybody, but for many doctors, their big hiccup with the DSO is having to work for them for five years. (laughs) All of a sudden, you're not the boss anymore. One of the best things about a partnership transition is you get to keep all the profit. If you plan it, work's right, you can get more money. Plus, you're going to be the boss until you walk out the back door. And not everybody, you know, most people, they think they're going to be good with working for somebody else, but... Then it happens, and somebody's in there telling them what to do. And it just ain't it. Because back when I was 23 years old, we were buying financial advisory firms, and I was the young buck that the private equity firm was sending in there to tell the old people what to do. And, you know, I just can't imagine. I think most of the time it went over pretty well, but I just can't imagine being 60 years old selling my company. And then this 23 year old that just graduated school is in here to tell me what to do. (laughs) Yeah. And some people don't respond well to that. Some people don't care and you
1: know, it takes both kinds, but you really have to be honest with yourself. And anytime we're talking about partnerships, you know, one of the big things I hit on is not everybody's partnership material. You know, it's just like, not everybody's, marriage material, but, you know, everybody thinks they are and 50% of us are wrong. So, you know, we don't have published data on, you know, the number of partnerships that fail, but we know that they don't work out. So being honest with yourself as to whether or not it's a good fit for you working with somebody, sharing decision-making, you know, is equally as important as, evaluating the financial end of things and making sure that it all works on paper
0: yeah the other part is just making sure that you put it both people are partner material you know meaning that that person's actually going to show up and they're going to do half of the admin duties or maybe you two have an agreement you understand who's going to do what that's always an interesting exercise i think you know write down everything that has to get done on the admin side and split it up who's going to do what and kind of give you the truth of it. Yeah.
1: And that's on a 50-50 partnership. I mean, there's some partnerships where, hey, you're only going to give up 5% of the equity. And in situations like that, well, you probably are going to retain all of the responsibilities and you're going to get to make all of the decisions, but that's also going to have a infl- an impact on the cash flow that either of you's taken home. You're not bringing in a partner in those scenarios to share decision-making. You're also not bringing in a partner in those scenarios to give up all your cash flow and so the financial ramifications of a deal like that and the qualitative ramifications of a deal like that are going to differ dramatically from a you know more a proportional partnership if you will 50 50 or a third a third a third or
0: 25 25 so on and so forth absolutely well going back to something i think we've been screaming at the top of the hilltops for a while we're not for or against these transactions but sell them to a dso it can be a gold mine. Think of it as a transition transition alternative. And for once, I feel like we get to be on the other side. Just because some people didn't get their money or got a bad deal doesn't mean they're all bad deals. So, you know, the rumor mill now is kind of pendulum swinging the other side. We're hearing the bad stories. They're not all bad stories. There's good stories out there. There's bad stories out there. Just like always. First, make sure you're financially ready to retire. If you don't know that, call us up, get some help. Let's figure out if you are financially ready. Second thing is review all of your options. I mean, even if you're the most adamant, I hate DSO person out there, still just see the numbers. Look at it. There's no harm in reviewing every single one of your options. Think about them, how it's going to impact you financially. And also- Think about how it's going to impact you emotionally, too, to do whatever option it is that you're going to do. Yeah. Make sure it's going to work for you. So, nothing's really changed. I think the truth is just coming out there a little bit more, but overall, the same stuff going on. We're finally just to the truth of the matter. Just be careful, no matter what it is, there is not a mulligan on a practice transition,
1: on any kind of <laughs> practice transition.
0: So, information's power.
1: Just make informed decisions. So just to build on and move on to the next article that we want to talk about, you know, you mentioned the need and so did I, we've kind of built, you know, or beat this dead horse and and we'll continue to, you know, the need to plan for retirement and reach those retirement goals. A lot of doctors over the years have been sitting on cash apparently. And, you know, now the question becomes with this high interest rate environment, You know, what are you telling doctors who are sitting on mounds and mounds of cash? I mean, I would imagine just throwing it all into the market at one time when you're potentially 10 years from retirement, probably not a good idea.
0: Yeah, this is really the problem with dentists, is they're hoarders. (laughs) They hoard cash. I'm scared of a rainy day. And you know, I don't necessarily blame them. Everybody wants to make sure they can keep their business afloat, but they're just losing so much money. So Kind of back up a little bit. I always tell this story. We won't tell a doctor's name, but you know, there's this doctor that came in here, and John McGill have been working with him since I don't know. I think they were both like 27 or 28, so they're both about the same age, and it was time to retire. And you know, he wanted John back in the meeting room for sentimental purposes. So I've been working with him for a while, so we sit down with him, and you know, he starts down this real big heartfelt thank you. And this individual has run every financial game known to man. We've got a huge estate tax issue. So I'm sitting here showing how to save tens of millions of dollars in taxes. (laughs) He starts down this thank you. And, you know, where my head's spinning. (laughs) Yeah, I'd be thankful, too, if I was saving $10 million in taxes. And that's not where the conversation went. The conversation went straight to John. He goes, thank you for putting me on auto draft for all my savings when I was back in my twenties. Cause if I hadn't done that, I'd be the brokest doctor out there. <laughs> and you, you know, telling them, you have no idea how much that meant to me. And that's kind of, we're going to talk about the symptom and what to do about it. But the biggest problem or how we got here is doctors don't understand their cash flow. They don't have the right retirement plan set up. They don't have the right drafts going on. So all of a sudden, you know, if you're, at least if they have the cash, they weren't spending it. But all of a sudden, the lack of a plan has ended in a million dollars sitting in cash. Right. With, you know, what do we do with it? To and your point.
1: Worse, lost investment returns.
0: Yeah. To your point, though, nobody wants to take a million dollars and throw them in the market tomorrow because right. if it goes down 20%, you lose $200,000, yeah. you're going to be upset. But if you dollar cost average it into the market, get on that game plan, you're in good shape. Now, assuming we haven't done that, we're sitting on this cash, we're nervous to invest it. It's just sitting in cash. What are we going to do with it? But you had mentioned interest rates. You said the private equity groups are at 12 to 14% getting their money. Yeah, I had a home equity line of credit out for some working capital because it was at like 3.5%. And then one day it magically went to like 9.5%. Yeah. So the first thing I did with some of my cash, which is actually number three if you're reading the newsletter, was... Yeah, we went ahead and got that high interest rate debt off. So, if you have any variable rate loans and you're sitting on cash and they've jumped a ton on you, that's the first thing is just get the high debt out of there. But then, a lot of people, CDs and money market funds are great places to go. So, a certificate of deposit is really just a guarantee to the bank you're not going to take your money out in the next 18 months. So, the bank can go lend the money to somebody else, knowing you're not going to call that deposit. So they might make a short-term loan. They might make an auto loan. Whatever they're going to do with that money, they know they've locked it in for 12, 18, 36 months. This is a great... You can get 5% or more on this money right now. 5% on cash. I mean, that's... We're talking like 0.2% for the last decade. I don't know. So meaningless. Most people weren't investing it. They're just sitting on it. Now, the CD is great if you think interest rates going to go back down. You're trying to time that. You can lock in that interest rate. But you do lock up your cash... The other one that's real simple and easy, reason I love it so much, is just a money market fund. So a money market fund is just a mutual fund that's going to hold a whole bunch of short term debt, including like treasury bills, short term bank notes, super, super high quality, really short term. And you just get in and get out of this fund whenever you want. It takes like a day to clear. They're paying over 5% right now. Wow. Now, most doctors, is where it gets a little tricky. Most doctors hoard their cash in their business checking account. (laughs) So what I do is I actually have Liam go and I have him open just a brokerage account in the practice name and your advisor shouldn't be charging a fee on it. Tell him no fee. Just open the brokerage account in the corporate name as a favor. Let them transfer the cash over, put it in the money market fund, make the 5%, send it back to them if they need it. And at least that way we're making 5%. (laughs)
1: Yeah, yeah, and as interest rates continue to go up, which I think they're expected to at least in the short term, those rates shouldn't be going anywhere anytime soon,
0: right? No, it's quite a fascinating one. We'll we'll leave the stock market and interest rates for another episode, but the yield curve is a little wild right now. So uh, interest rates are up. You know they could be here to stay. I think we got a lot of competition for currencies now. Oil is being traded in currencies that aren't the U.S. dollar. So with you know, you have competition for currency. It's like competition for anything else. You got to offer a higher rate in order to get people to put their money into dollars. So, tough to say what's going to happen with interest rates. But yeah, I don't know. I don't expect it to go down to 1% tomorrow. Well, with that,
1: why don't we move on to tax fraud?
0: Tax fraud. Yeah. Did you commit
1: any? <laughs> Luckily, no. Um, we, we got you straight and narrow there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I feel it's probably not good advice to be giving tax advice and committing fraud at the same time.
0: You know, you just came to a great point that we're going to cover. We need to talk about the employee retention tax credit. Yeah. But there's all these promoters out there promoting it and the CPAs haven't. So a lot of people are wondering, you know, why didn't my CPA help me with this tax credit? Well, it's because your CPA cannot commit fraud on your behalf. (laughs) It's real simple. They can,
1: but there are very stiff punitive damages.
0: Yeah, the other thing is your CPA, with a couple of very minor exceptions, your CPA cannot take a contingent fee on a tax result. So you get these promoters out there, and they're saying, hey, you know, Jonathan, you get 28000 per employee, you know, as long as you were impacted by COVID, and we're only going to take 30% of that. You know, it's funny. I don't even
1: have TV and we haven't since we had kids. So for, you know, 12 years, I haven't seen commercials really, unless I go, you know, watch a football game at somebody's house. And so you said they're advertising for these things.
0: I mean, Um, I think it was an NBA game, but I could be wrong. So don't quote me on that. But I was just at night. I don't really watch it. I just kind of turned something on. And this was over the summer and I'm sitting there and on the court, Is an ERC company advertising in the middle of a professional sports game, which just I don't know what that cost. I've never even thought or sniffed trying to advertise at a professional sports game, but it's got to be a lot of
1: money, right? So, So bottom line, you have companies who are advertising to business owners saying, hey, you've left money on the table. And we will go file on your behalf. We'll keep, what, 15 to 20% and remit the rest (laughs) to you. And now the government has put a freeze on all new claims. Yeah. Over $3 trillion of claims. I
0: think it's up to two. But this program was originally meant to reimburse small businesses that kept their employees on, even though they were shut down due to a COVID mandate or their collections were down 50% or more in 2020 or 20% or more in the first three quarters of 2021. So that's what it was for, is really for struggling businesses to have a tax credit to make their payroll. So now the the IRS has realized, okay,
1: there's a lot of fraud here and they've stopped claims. They're
0: challenging claims.
1: They're taking some of these companies to court as well.
0: Basically what happened was the first thing was if you were shut down due to a governmental order, then you could make a claim on the ERC. Well, these promoters have said, if anything COVID-related impacted your business, you can claim the tax credit. That's not true. So what happened, a program that was originally projected to be like $85 billion has had almost $2 trillion worth of claims. And the IRS has already identified that most of them are fraudulent. And to make matters worse, the IRS has been, since day one, since these promoters started, has been putting out constant information. Do not listen to the promoters. Go talk to your CPA. Don't get tax advice from these people. And yet we've got tons and tons of claims, TV ads. Kevin O'Leary from Shark Tank, I mean, he's got a he's on an advertisement for it. I mean, it's just crazy the level of promotion. So there is a little bit of good news in here. The IRS has realized that most of the taxpayers did not intentionally commit fraud if they went after this. So not only have they frozen any new processing of claims. They're gonna put stricter limitations on the current claims being processed, but they've also, we don't have the details on this yet, but they're going to come out with a way to self-report. If you found out information later and you didn't think you deserved the claim, there's gonna be a self-report where you don't have to fear an audit or penalties. You can just self-report, return the money. And I mean, there's also gonna be a way, if you did file a claim and it hasn't been processed yet, and you don't think you qualify, you're going to be able to just withdraw your claim and not have to deal with it because they have tons of new agents, budget, ton of the new agents are being trained and assigned to this. I mean, this is probably the largest tax fraud to ever go on, and it's probably going to be the largest audit to ever happen. So real quick to recap, though, because if you actually qualified for this tax credit, we want to take it. Meaning You One of three things had to have happened either. You were shut down due to a governmental order, meaning you have the order, it can be a local order, a state order, but you have to have that order. You were shut down and you kept your staff members on. And if you did that, you are eligible during that period of shutdown to take this credit. Now, the other two ways, one is if you're a startup recovery business, basically, if you're a new practice, there's potential. So if you are a new practice in this period, talk to your CPA either way. The other one is a percentage of collections decrease. So in 2020, if quarter two, three, or four was down 50% or more in collections as compared to the prior year, 2019, or if you were down 20% or more in the first three quarters of 2021, as compared to 2019, then you legitimately qualify for this tax credit and your CPA can help you file it. They will likely charge you a flat fee, hourly fee, something to help do it. But if that's the case, don't be scared. Absolutely go claim the tax credit you're entitled to. Now, If you qualified or you had one of these promoters that took 10, 20%, say you were impacted by COVID because of X, Y, and Z, and you didn't have a governmental order, you weren't down by 50% or more, because most of the practices are going to qualify in 2020, quarter two, most dental practices were up in 2021. So if that is the case, and you claim this, talk to your CPA. Don't go blindly, do something. Go tell your CPA hey, I did this. I know you told me not to. I realize it's fraud. Can you help me fix it? You know, I heard the IRS is going to come out with some things. So we'll keep you updated as more and more comes out. But generally speaking, a little bit of good news for taxpayers and that the IRS seems to be friendly to the situation. The bad news is if you got the money and you shouldn't have, you need to give it back because if not, they might come looking for 25% penalty plus interest, plus all the money you're getting back. And if you really think about this, a lot of people haven't done the math. The promoters, I've seen as low as 10%. I've seen up to 30% of the tax credit you pay to the promoters. So that's going to be an expense. You have to go back, amend a tax return, and the amount of the credit has to get the wages in that year have to get reduced. So you have to go get a CPA to amend your prior year tax return, reduce the wages. Now you have to go back and pay more federal and state income tax on that. So when you really shake it out, if you used one of these promoters, you're unlikely to keep even half the money after you pay the tax and the fee. And then lo and behold, if the IRS comes back and they want a 25% penalty and interest on top of it, and you got to give the money back. I mean, you could just see where this is going to get really, really nasty for some people that don't self-report, don't do it. So our recommendation would be, you know, if you have done this, usually the way billing is working is you're getting the check. And then once you get the check, you have to send the payment to the promoter group. Go talk to your CPA before you do anything, before you send the check, fix the problem, try not to pay the promoters, You know, get out of as much of it as you can and make things right.
1: All right. Wow. Well, I guess the last article that we want to talk about, and there's plenty of other articles. This was this newsletter was packed this month, so make sure you go read for everything else that we're not covering. But the last one that we are covering is notifying patients about unused benefits. So why don't you, you know, tell us about that?
0: Yeah. You know, if your practice isn't fully busy, a lot of patients, even if they're out of network. A lot of the patients, if they had treatment that was recommended or they just haven't gotten cleanings, their insurance will pay for. Now is a great way to reactivate patients or get patients to accept treatment that previously didn't, especially on reactivating. You know, if you can call them, send them a letter. But if you know certain patients, too, and you just call them and remind them, you know, you're doing it to help them get their teeth healthy as well as. You know, hey, if I need a couple fillings or I need a crown and my insurance is willing to pay up to a thousand dollars, even if I gotta pay eight hundred, you know, I want to get that done and get that benefit paid for. So it's a nice way to help your patients as well as get your practice a little bit busier as we go into year-end planning. But speaking of year-end planning, Jonathan, now this is gonna be our first ever episode where we have people listening and watching. So just a heads up, if you are watching us. This will be available on Spotify. We're going to have a McGill Hill Group channel. You can go subscribe to it, listen to your car as you would like. Those of you listening on the podcast for the first time that haven't subscribed, make sure you subscribe to the McGill Advisory Newsletter. I'm an online only article, top 50 year-end tax planning strategies. So every year you need to open up this article, make sure you go through them. We could have a podcast for weeks on every single thing you do. Make sure you get on there. Make sure that you're doing any of those items that you need to be doing. Also, a few other things. It is gift season. So we had a lot of feedback from doctors that wanted to send this drilling it down over to people that weren't subscribers. We're going to be on Spotify for you. We hear you. So now you'll be able to send it to them if you heard something you want them to listen to. Also, something great you can give, especially if you're you know, a specialist to your referring doctors, it is gift Newsletter season. So, in the newsletter, you will receive, for those of your subscribers, you will get an order form. Make sure if you want a gift to gift any that you fill that out. It's a great gift to give. There's discounts depending on how many you order in order to get the newsletter. But we also, they will get access to everything online. We will have CE coming out in the next years. We update the portal. But another great thing that we've noticed, I think, more and more is that specialist or really is a gift to their referring doctors or having us come speak to them. So Jonathan, I know me and you are actually heading down to Charleston on Friday, but for those of you who are interested, we do come out, we do speak to study clubs and we do anywhere from, you know, an hour to about four hours. We do do as much as six, but we recommend generally, we're looking at tax items, financial planning, you know, everything a dental practice owner needs to know four hours is a really, really good amount (laughs) on a Friday, you know, they come in, you can do it like 830 to 1230 have lunch, I tend to know this, you know, we do six, seven hours that the last hour or two, you know, it's, it's probably better to have a cocktail hour or something of it is for us to keep going. But if you are interested, we do book out. So make sure you contact us about that. And then last thing, we have an end of year tax planning seminar that's going to be here in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I think it is going to be the first Friday in November. It's going to be a one-day seminar. We're going to spend about four hours on tax issues, so upcoming changes, what's going on. We're also going to go through. There are a lot more IRS auditors. We expect audits to go up. We've actually already seen audits going up, believe it or not. So with that, we're going to show you exactly what you can do, what you can't do, how to make sure you properly document everything. And then, of course, we're going to spend two hours on the back end to tell you how to make as much money as possible and make sure you reach retirement. But with that, Jonathan, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Always good to be here. And we'll see you back next month. This wraps up another episode of Drilling It Down. We look forward to seeing you the next episode. In the meantime, make sure to visit our website, mcgilladvisory.com. And if you aren't a current subscriber, subscribe to our newsletter. Use code PODCAST20 for 20% off your initial subscription.